Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. So my name is Michael. Uh, welcome to the chapel this morning. If you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we're continuing our study in the book of Isaiah. And to begin with, I want to ask a question. And that question is, do you mind if I be honest with you this morning? Now, it's always a bad thing when somebody starts with that, I know. But do you mind if I be honest with you this morning? Yep. Okay, so here we go. Isaiah is a challenging book for some people. It's 66 chapters that reads like a horror story. Uh, with about three or four chapters in which you take all the good bits, you can probably put them into about three or four chapters, but the rest of it is, is, is the thing of nightmares. Okay, so it's, it's pretty hard to, uh, to zhush it up, uh, but we'll give it a shot. Are you ready? So, here we go. And I'm going to start with a funny scripture, which is in keeping with that. It says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained to distinguish good and evil. And in the Garden of Eden with original sin, it says, The serpent said, For God knows that when you eat from the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And that's the challenge that we're going to find in the book of Isaiah as we read through it. The knowledge of good and evil, original sin, that's the problem with the world. People want to play God. They want to work out themselves. They want to say for themselves what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. They don't want to submit to what God calls it. And for humans, in a very general sense, something is good if it serves our purposes, if it supports what we want. And something is bad if it doesn't serve our purposes, if it doesn't support what we want. But we're going to discover that God has a whole very different definition of good and evil. And it seems to hover around if it serves his purposes. So I've been asked to speak about themes in the book of Isaiah. And so today is brought to you by the theme song from the hit TV series, Friends. So let's sing it all together. Here's the first line. Are you ready? So no one told you life was going to be this way. Okay. So Isaiah is a bit like that. It's going to, they didn't realize what was about to hit them. So Isaiah provides comprehensive insights for understanding God. The same God who created the universe is the same God who created bird poo. But the interesting thing is that's not bird poo. It's actually a caterpillar camouflages bird poo so that the birds won't eat it. So we have to, it begs the question, what was God thinking? <laughs> he created the universe and then took the time to do that. <clears throat> you see, because this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the whole reason we're here. That's the whole reason we're going to exist for the rest of eternity to get to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And not the God that we would like him to be. That's called idolatry when we create a God out of our imagination. But it's the God who says, I am who I am. And if you want to get to know me, you, get to know, need, to, you, you, you need to get to know who I am. So Isaiah also provides comprehensive insights for understanding life, this crazy thing we call life. The wars, the disasters, the horrible things that happen all over the place. We ask ourselves, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? But the Bible tells us there is no good, there is not one righteous, no, not one. So the question is, why do good things happen to bad people? And it also gives us insights, the book of Isaiah, into why we exist, why we were created. And the answer is, then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We were created for one purpose, to be like God. Everything God does in our, in our lives is to bring us back from wanting to do what we want, our knowledge of good and evil, and to bring us back to what he wants, 
which is his holiness, and to be like him. So I've been asked to talk about themes. There's a number of great themes through the book of Isaiah. Sovereignty, holiness versus idolatry, sin, judgment, salvation, justice, alliance, faith and fear, the mission, the servant, and the last days. But before we start, I just need to do a recap. Now, last week, Tatenda Shumba did a great introduction to Isaiah chapter 1, and it contains a lot of these themes. So I just want to show you that right at the beginning, Isaiah outlines the themes. 1 verse 3, the ox knows its master, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's the fundamental question. People don't know God. And because of that, they fall into sin. Verse 4, sin, judgment, and the remnant. Woe to the sinful nation, this is Judah, given to corruption. Your country will be desolate, your cities burned with fire. Unless the Lord had left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. So we see right through the book of Isaiah, God is judging sin. And the reason he's doing that is he's trying to turn people back to himself. But he says that those who turn to the Lord, a remnant, will be saved. Verse 10, holiness. Hear the word of the Lord. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away your evil. In the book of um, uh, Isaiah, it says that when Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw the seraphim and the angels, that song we just sang, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For all the earth is full of your glory. And so God's called us to be holy because he's created us in his image and his likeness. 17, justice, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Another theme through the book of Isaiah is social and economic justice. Verse 18, salvation and redemption. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you are willing and obedient, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. So God has a plan of redemption in there for those who are willing and obedient. But those who don't, will be devoured by the sword. Verse 21, judgment again, but now your silver has become dross. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless or the widow. Therefore, the Lord says, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. The Bible says every child he loves, he disciplines. And if God doesn't discipline you, then you're an illegitimate child. If he loves you, he will do whatever's necessary to keep you going in the right direction to save us and protect us. Restoration, verse 26, then I'll restore at the beginning. Afterwards, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and then finishes with judgment. But those who for the sake of the Lord shall be consumed. And that's what the majority of the theme is through the book of Isaiah. All of it from chapter 1 through to 66. But then we go to chapter 2. And chapter 2 leaps us into the future. And it uses this word, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So now we've jumped to our time. That the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of our God. That's where we're living now, where the the gospel is going into all the earth. And then verse 12, but there'll be judgment for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Verse 19, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from the the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. In that day, mankind will cast aside their idols when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop trusting in man. And so what we do here is we jump from our day to the final judgment. The words we're reading here are the same words we see in the book of Revelations. They will hide in caves when they see the terror of the Lord. And it says in 13 verse 9, For see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven will not show their light, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. And that's the book of Revelations. So what we have here is 
1 Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin with the house of God. And it begins with us. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And this is the theme of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has a huge scope, as I've just demonstrated. It starts in 700 BC with the, the, what's called the Sarah Ephronite War. And so what I do want to do is just give you some geopolitics of what was going on at the time. So what we have here, whoops, I just got to head over to this other page over here. Great. So Isaiah lived through a stormy period marking the expansion of the Assyrian Empire and the decline of Israel. So I just got to click over here. Okay, the Assyrian Empire is in purple there. Under Tiglath, King Tiglath-Pilsler III, the Assyrians swept westward into Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and Canaan. That's the sections in down the bottom green there. Uh, but in about 733, the king of Aram and Israel tried to pressure Ahaz, king of Judah, into joining a coalition. Now, as we know, whoops, thought this would happen. There we go. So Syria joined up with Israel in the north and tried to get Judah in the south, which we can see here. Can you see Aram in the top left-hand corner? They joined with Israel, which is the northern tribes, and they tried to get Judah, which is the southern tribes, to side with them against the Assyrians, to try to stop the Assyrians. Ahaz chose instead to ask Tiglath-Pileser for help, the decision condemned by Isaiah. And we see a theme through the book of Isaiah, so don't form alliances with the world to try to produce security and safety and significance, but rather trust in the Lord with all your heart. Amen? Call upon him and he'll provide our every need according to his riches in glory. It goes on and says Assyria did assist Judah and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. This made Judah even more vulnerable, and in 701, King Sennacherib of Assyria threatened Jerusalem itself, and the godly king Hezekiah prayed earnestly, and Isaiah predicted that God would force the Assyrians to withdraw from the city. Now, that's not after Hezekiah tried to make an alliance with Egypt, which fell through. They were all trying to make alliances, trying to get the world to help them, but God was saying, no, call upon me, and I will help you. So, nevertheless, Isaiah warns Judah that sin would bring captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. The visit of the Babylonian king's envoys to Hezekiah set the stage for the prediction. And that's where they came, and Hezekiah showed them all the riches of Judah, all the gold that was in the temple. And he was trying to build an alliance with the Babylonians, not realizing if you do that, they'll turn around and bite you in the back. And that's exactly what happened. So although the fall of Jerusalem would take place, it wouldn't be till 586 BC. Isaiah assumed the destruction of Judah and proceeded to protect the restoration of the people from captivity. God would redeem his people from Babylon, just as he had rescued them from Egypt. So what we have here is this is a little map that I took from um, a news feed just last week, talking about how Iran on the right has sided with Syria, top middle, to join with Gaza, middle left-hand side, against Israel. So as you can see, the book of Isaiah, 2,300 years ago, is just as relevant today. Back in those days, God said in uh, Isaiah 7.20, In that day the Lord will use a razor, hide from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and your private parts. Babylon, it says. In Jeremiah 51, verse 4, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us, and the daughter of Babylon is doomed to destruction. So what we have is the Assyri God used the Assyrian Empire to punish Israel and Judah. But they were horrific. They would actually slaughter people by the thousands. So then God used the Babylonian Empire 
to punish the Assyrian Empire. But it says the Babylonians, it says in Psalm 137, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks because that's what the Babylonians did. They were so horrific. Then God got the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran, to punish the Assyrian Empire. But this is the Persian Empire. See, I will stir up the Medes who do not care for silver, nor do they delight in gold. They have no mercy on infants, nor do they look and have compassion on children. They were just as bad. So what we have here is, if I can get this to work again, is... So, whoops. We jump from the pre-exilic times, this is the scope of the book of Isaiah, now to the post-exilic times, or our days. In chapter 53, it introduces us to the suffering servant, which is Jesus 2,000 years ago when he came and died on the cross. And then it refers to the church age in Isaiah 41 verse 9, where it talks about the gospel, that the Gentiles will be drawn from the ends of the earth. And then it talks about the last days, Isaiah 2, which is the, it uses the word last days, the consummation of all things. And finally, it talks about the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. And we find that in Isaiah 65 verse 17. So as you can see, the scope of Isaiah runs from 700 B.C., right through to the end of time. Quite an amazing scope. So when it comes to these themes, I haven't got an ice cream's hope in hell of actually getting through them all, so I've just picked two. <clears throat> That's not in the Bible. <laughs> That's why it's not up there. <clears throat> I'm just going to look at sovereignty and the servant, or the sovereign God and the servant God. So sovereignty is understanding that God is, for want of a better word, God. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, I am God and there is no mother, other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please and accomplish all I purpose. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man fulfilled to fulfill my purpose. And there it's referring to Cyrus, the king of Persia. And it refers to him as a, 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 a bird of prey, which is an animal designed to kill. What I have said, that I will bring to pass. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who now are far from my righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. So God's going to bring judgment because in the end, he wants to purge away the dross to bring salvation. Acts 15 verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. In theology, we have these three ideas about God, that God's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he can do anything, and he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. Colossians says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God created everything, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, what's going on today? God is the author of all of it in the background. It says, for we are predestined according to the person of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 45 verse 1, then talking of Cyrus. This is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name, though you do not acknowledge me. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah is the only prophet to mention somebody by name 140 years in the future, way before they were born. A phenomenal thing. 
Jesus quotes, the, 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 of all the prophets, Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet more than anyone. But that's cheating, really, because the Bible says um, all scripture is God-breathed, so Jesus is just quoting himself. <laughs> it turns around and says that Cyrus was a heathen king who would not acknowledge God. So God uses the unsaved to achieve his purposes. And in the end, he says, because the end is to get everyone to turn to me and be saved, everyone from the ends of the earth. Then in Isaiah 48, he also reinforces it by saying, listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who claim to rely on the God of Israel. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron and your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago before they happened. I announced them so that you could not say otherwise. But the interesting thing is that's exactly what's happening. There's a thing in higher criticism or historical criticism called redaction criticism. And that's where they go back to see where did the scriptures actually come from. And they actually argue that, that first Isaiah chapters 1 to 39, which is like the 39 books of the Old Testament, were actually written by Isaiah at a time from 740 to 700 AD where he could reasonably predict the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian invasion. That's what they thought. So they, then they thought Isaiah's 40 to 66 is talking about all this stuff in the future. So it couldn't possibly have been Isaiah that did that. And, so, and also because of some literal, literal criticism, which once again can be argued, they, they then believed that these, the last bits of the book were written by his disciples who lived during the Babylonian captivity, is what they argue. But it actually says here, it says, Therefore I told you these things long ago before it happened, so that you could not say otherwise. Is that amazing? Just a little thing depending on which opinion you want to take. So sovereignty. The second thing I want to look at with sovereignty is the primary and secondary cause. God who created all things is therefore the primary cause of all things. Nothing can happen on this earth unless God created it in the first place. And God who is omniscient, who knows the end from the beginning, who calls things before they're going to happen, knows exactly what's going to happen. So God is the primary cause of all things. An example of this, it says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will equip the battle, though you have not known me, so that all may know from where the sun rises to where it sets that there is none but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light. I create darkness. I bring prosperity, which is the Hebrew word shalom for peace, and I create calamity or disaster, which is the Hebrew word ra for evil, exactly the same word we find in Genesis where it talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, I'm the one that does both these things. For example, in the book of Job, it says, Job, the man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So right from the outside, God says, Job is blameless. That's a very important point. The interesting thing is, who starts the conversation? Who draws the devil's attention to Job? Is it the devil? No, God does it. Then the devil says, does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hands, but now stretch out your hands and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And we know what happened next. 
One day a messenger came to Job and said, The Sabaeans attacked and put your servants to the sword. Then another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. Another said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down with their camels and made off of them. They put the servants to the sword. Bad day to be a servant. Another said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're all dead. He lost everything. Everything. And verse 20 says, At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Isn't that amazing? He understood God had a greater purpose. Now, the book of Job is about... um, Whoops. The book of Job is about 40 chapters. 33 of those chapters is Job's friends trying to convince Job, the reason why all this has happened to you is because you're a sinner. <laughs> they took the simplistic approach. We have this, you know, if something's good, it's of God. If something's bad, it's sin or of the devil. It doesn't work that way. Job realized that God had a bigger agenda. He was trying to make a point. He was trying to show, he was trying to show the devil that, God, that Job could remain faithful to God by the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Is that amazing? That's what he was trying to do. And so what we have is Job, at, at, in the middle of this argument with his friends, it says, but Job cynically says to his friends, but ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? He knew right from the jump what was going on. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but people who aren't spiritual can't accept these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolishness to them, and they can't understand them, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. So all of history is his story. It's God's work from beginning to end. And in history's page, sorry, in history's page, every stage is advancing God's will and the eternal plan and purpose of God. Amen. So now we're going to move to the second one, which is the servant. And there's three servants which Isaiah focuses on. Isaiah, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor, he says. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise, raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God had called the nation of Israel as their servant, as his servant. And he did it to bring the blessings of Abraham to the nations of the world. It says the second servant is the Messiah. It says, for unto us, Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I 42, 42, it says, and here is my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Then Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. For surely he took our pain and bore our sufferings, yet he, we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. And so what we see is when bad things happen, we think it's God punishing someone, but necessarily that's not the case. God sometimes sometimes using that to save somebody else. It goes on and says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and makes his life an offering for sin. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And so when we move to the church, we need to understand that we were created in the image of God to be like God so we're created like God to be like 
the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So when we get to the church, it says, Isaiah 56 says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. So Isaiah talks about the coming of the Gentiles of the church. Philippians 2.4 says, so let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And that's what we were created for, to be like God, to take that form of a servant just like Jesus did. So Ephesians says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And Romans, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Everything God is doing in your bed, whether you call it good or in your life, whether you call it good or bad, is designed to fulfill this purpose. <clears throat> However, often we find Christians praying across purposes to the will of God rather than searching for understanding and embracing the will of God. An example of this is Peter didn't understand that Jesus, as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, had to come to die. And so then Peter, when Jesus said, I've got to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, in verse 22, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. And that's where we get messed up. Because we're mindful of the things of man, not the purposes of God. Isaiah 55 verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For example, God gave the early church a great commission, Acts 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But they didn't go. They stayed in Jerusalem. So in Acts 7, whilst, he was being, whilst they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approving of their killing him on that uh, approved of them of them killing him and on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria when the church wouldn't go God raised up someone who would send them and guess who it was it was Saul even before he was saved another example Jesus heals many but let's take a look at the backstory. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there a few more days. And then later he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go and see him. And when he gets there in verse 43, And then he said to him, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came to life. Jesus raised a man from the dead, but he waited four days for him to die. Another example, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man or his parents sinned. We're back in Job again. Where they're saying, Job, the reason all this is happening is because of sin. And Job's saying, that's not it. God's got another purpose here. Neither this man nor his parents did, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. For Exodus 4 verse 1 says, when he's talking to Moses at the burning bush, and Moses said, I'm not a good speaker, God says to him, then the Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Another example. God literally sent people into captivity to take his good news to the Gentiles because we would never go there of our own accord. God made the following people literally servants. 
He sent, he sent Joseph down to Egypt. Why? So he could save the world from a famine. He sent Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego during this time in our book of Isaiah. He sent them to Babylon. Why? So they could bring the praises of God to the kingdom of Babylon and so the the people who weren't saved could actually know God because they wouldn't go there of their own accord. He took Esther and Mordecai and sent them to the Persian Empire because the people of Israel wouldn't go there of their own accord. So he sent them there. Genesis. For the Lord called to Abraham, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And let me put it this way, one way or another, (laughs) thy will be done. See, God, to do that, God has told us we've got to learn to love our enemies. Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These were literal enemies back in these days. That you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even pagans do that. But be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. That's God's goal. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus demonstrated this in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Romans says, For we know that all things God works for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. Isn't that a great scripture? But let's read it in context. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So the next time you quote that last verse, put it in context. 2 Corinthians 4.16, therefore we do not lose heart for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal, the eternal plan and purposes of God. And since then we have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Isaiah provides comprehensive insights for understanding God, life, and why we were created. And why were we created? This is life eternally, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.